Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, ETF sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long and Future for Investors. Today, we also have a special co-host in the studio, Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Wes, welcome to the studio. Thanks. We're excited to be here. We're going to have a great show. Professor Siegel is going to join us for some quick commentary. Uh, just brief note, I'm registered representative for Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the office of investment products and views or guests of their own, not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have two special guests in the studio with us. We're going to be talking with Rich Wiggins and Andy Weissman. Uh, we're going to get their backgrounds, intros in just a few seconds. But Professor Siegel, I know you've got a, a limited time here. Just maybe you can start off some commentary on what you see happening. We've had a little sell-off the last two weeks, uh, just a little tiny sell-off. Um, although, you know, any take on what, what's been happening? Yeah, I still think, like we said last week, it's all about taxes. And, you know, yesterday when the House passed it uh, by a rather comfortable margin, uh, the their tax bill, uh, that spurred the market. It wasn't the only thing that spurred the market. I mean, we got uh, great earnings from Walmart, which I, I say shows that, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you fight back effectively against Amazon, uh, you might make it. I mean, it really spurred that stock which was given up for debt, I think, uh, about six months ago, uh, really to new all-time highs. Uh, Cisco also reported some really good uh, earnings. Uh, but that caused a big increase in the market. Um, you know, basically everything, uh, we had great housing start uh, data this morning, and I uh, just noticed Macro Advisors has now lifted their uh, Q, uh, Q um uh, f- uh, for estimate, which had been 2.5% uh, to 2.9%, uh, several others are in the 3% range, so we may, may still get a 3% handle. Of course, as we all know, um, uh, you know how successful fourth quarter is, often how good the Christmas season is. We have Thanksgiving next Thursday, as we know, launching the this season, and so the book is yet to be written on how fast we're actually uh, going to go. But uh, we're going to hope to – the Senate voted its uh, package out. Uh, if it could fast-track it and get it through, it's going to be harder than the House. We know that. And then there's reconciliation. But it would be lovely to get it uh, through by Christmas. Very good. Um, one of our guests here is, is, is uh, got some ties to oil. Do you have any views on what's been happening in the oil markets today? Uh, well, boy, I, I see it up, you know, 2 2.5%. Now, it had been a little bit weak earlier uh after a big uh, surge but uh yeah that's uh you know energy is uh, the strongest sector now in the S&P it's up about uh, half a percent and um uh you know that's been the sector that's lagged over the last couple of years so anything that adds to earnings on that is going to be good for the S&P earnings for 2017 Wes any comments questions for the professor 
No comments, questions. Excited to uh, to jump talk into with it. Yes, I saw the um, uh, professor. I know you comment on on Fed um, policy and, and changes. Uh, we saw maybe speculation for the vice chair, Mohammed Arian. Any yeah. comments on Mohammed as a potential vice chair? Yeah, I mean he's also a, no, a very known qual- uh, quantity. Someone said that he's actually been on CNBC more than you have, Jeremy. You know, he's a regular commentator. He's a book writer. He's following the markets all the time. I, uh, again, no special, uh, you know, knowledge, particularly of monetary policy, but my goodness, you can't be at PIMCO and do everything he did without knowing the Fed and what they're doing and, you know, rubbing shoulders with Bill Gross all the time and talking about these issues. I I think think he would be, uh, you know, quite a fine uh, vice chair. Very good. Any questions for Professor Rich or Andy? Uh, nothing comes to mind immediately. <laughs> Very good. All right, Professor, all right. thank you for, uh, for well, taking a few minutes you. with us. And we're going to see all you guys in two weeks again. Very good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Um, so let me uh, have uh, – Wes, you are one of my uh, partners on the show here today. Uh, maybe – and you invited Rich on the show. Maybe uh, you could help do the honors of giving some introductions to Rich, how you got to know Rich. And, uh, and, and Andy, then we'll, we'll get your background and introduction as well. Sure. So Rich actually reached out. I think you cold called me or emailed me about, I don't know, three or four years ago. He's a geek reading our blog. Um, and we just started factor chatting and we've been chatting factors for four years now. Uh, he works for a large firm out in uh, the Middle East and he's knee deep in investments and making decisions and sees a lot of really interesting, exciting things. And it should be interesting to get his view on the markets these days. And Andy Weisman, we talked. We just got to meet each other a little bit at lunch. And your background, we uh, you do a lot of alternative-oriented investments. Today, you're at Wyndham Capital. Prior to that, you were at Janus overseeing some of the alternative funds there. Um, and before that, Merrill as uh, as hedge fund uh, due diligence. Well, no, not due, due diligence. I was actually or, their or chief she, investment she, officer for all the hedge fund businesses. Sorry, yeah, sorry for the uh, misstatement <laughs> there. Big big difference there. Yeah. Um, so, Wes, how, in terms of starting off our conversation, should we high level? I I think we go back to Andy. Just recap some of these stories he was telling. Just talking due diligence on managers. So, so okay. <laughs> Um, due diligence on managers. You so looking at alternatives. Uh, you guys run a lot of alternatives oriented portfolios, and you know we were talking about a, a different book out there. Um, this, the the book was called. Um, no one would listen. No one would listen. And we, we sort of talked about, have, has anybody read this book, No One Would Listen? Why don't you tell the story about what is being covered in that book um, as, as from your eyes? Okay. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background first. But um, it's, uh, it's been my experience that um, in, in order to uh, sustain the argument that you're actually doing something useful from an investment standpoint when you're allocating money to a manager, it's helpful to uh, be able to, to a large degree, reverse engineer their return histories. Uh, just to make sure that uh, you understand, at the very least, conditionally, how the market is behaving and how their returns are evolving over time. Um, and, you know, you can do a much better job at putting portfolios together. You can also use this technology, um, you know, for, you know, ferreting out uh, stuff that you would uh, like to avoid. So, you know, one of the most important things is not necessarily what you include in a portfolio, but also, you know, what you choose to exclude. That can that, that can drive performance and um, and sustain your your uh, paycheck uh, <laughs> through uh, disasters. So um, the book 
uh, No One Would Listen was actually, you know, came out a few years ago. It was written by a gentleman by the name of Harry Markopoulos and another fellow by the name of David Fisher, who's a professional writer. And with uh, 23, at this point, uh, New York Times bestsellers under his belt. So he's, you know, reasonably handy with a word processor. Um, And uh, part of the story, um, and it, you know, it took many, many years, uh, obviously, for Harry Markopoulos to gain the uh, the confidence and attention of the SEC and finally, you know, get them to bring um, Bernie Madoff to justice. And back in 2001, about seven years before um, they, they came and got him, um, Harry and, and, a, and another reporter um, for Opalesque, I believe it was, Michael Okrant, were, were looking at this track record. And it just was fabulous. And it just, you know, caused their uh, their radars to go up. And so they went to someone that they um, thought was ostensibly good at reverse engineering track records. And they said, here's the track record. Here are the class of securities that are being traded, types of strategies. You know, can you, can you reconcile this? And he said, absolutely. I'm really good at it. And of course, goes away for a week, fails miserably, loses a lot of self-esteem in the process. And then it dawns on him that the reason he can't do it is because it's a Ponzi scheme and and, uh, and the data has been produced, the returns using something known as its technical concept, uh, the PFA system, which the polite version is pulled from air. Um, so uh, in any event, that was me. Pulled from air. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was the person that they'd gone to wow. on that day. And, and – uh, and it just it was obvious that it was a Ponzi scheme. There was really no combination of anything that you could do that could replicate that uh so so we had a lot of alpha uh, yeah if, if you want to call it that yeah, yeah. <laughs> fake alpha I <laughs> yeah. guess schmelfa yeah, yeah. You turn the symbol upside down so um and, and how have you you know you do a lot of alternative investments yourself today, uh, yeah, so how do you think about and you use a sort of interesting word reverse engineering track records as something you were very good at. How do you think about just the hedge fund industry track records? I mean, there's a lot of commentary. I mean, even just this week, I, I was reading a blog saying, you know, talking about liquid alternatives and how expensive all the liquid alternative funds are out there. How do you? I mean, you've had a long history running these type right. of funds. I mean, tell me, tell us about your approach. Well, I, I think the the approach is, in, in many respects, is really not very novel. So, my colleague Rich Lindsay, uh, who's a professor at uh, the Courant Institute. Um, put together a really nice presentation where he was showing sort of the history of what you know, what, you, what we understand to be alpha. And just from a technical standpoint, um, you know, alpha is essentially the intercept term in a regression equation, and you set it um, to whatever it needs to be so that the expected value of the error term is zero. In other words, most of what we think of as alpha is in many cases just model misspecification. You're just not appropriately describing what's going into it. So, um, you know, the history of alpha is originally when Harry Markowitz came up with mean variance optimization, just simply doing that was considered a form of alpha. And then, you know, we took a look at equity managers and everything that they did that could not be explained by the stock market going up, that one-factor model, um, that was considered alpha. And then, you know, Fama and French came along and, and they introduced additional factors and then everything that those things didn't explain. And now we've sort of moved to a world where we've identified a much broader collection of of, of essentially risk premia that we can include in, in that collection. And as time goes by, that which can be identified as alpha, that which is essentially uh, the part that we cannot explain is shrinking dramatically. 
Um, and and in many cases, it's not even clear what it is, uh, if it's alpha at all. Just to follow up on that, Andy, when you, you're trying to explain these alt returns, what, what have you found as kind of like the core recipes that kind of explain what these hedge fund people mm-hmm. and alternative folks are doing? So, you know, it's, it's pretty standard stuff. Um, in, in certain cases, um, it is, is the stock market going up. So beta to the market um, is, is pretty high. Uh, you know, some of the classic Fama French risk factors do explain it. You know, essentially seeking to purchase those stocks that are cheap relative to their fundamentals, relative to a set of, of uh, basic accounting identities that measure value, uh, and short stocks that are, that are rich. Um, you know, buying stocks that are small cap and selling ones that are large cap. Um, you know, controlling for for quality. Uh, so there's there's a bunch of these metrics, and that does go a long way to explain, um, you know, the, the returns of a, of a particular, uh, of in particular, long short equity hedge fund, and also momentum in the market. So there's a lot of momentum chasing that goes on. Let me bring Rich into the conversation because I know you also. He just started talking about factors and factors mm-hmm. that add value and. And uh, you were been emailing Wes about different factors, but you've also are, are working on a paper, I believe, that's coming out that, that calls BS on factors. Maybe you sort of talk about why you think some of the factor discussion is BS. A little overstated. Yeah, that's true. Um, so what we try to do is go beyond the pitch. And so nowadays to sell an index is to sell a product or a strategy. So like AdHack has like something like 4,200 smart beta indices. And the research that, that we've done, we've got some, you know, good analysts back in Saudi Arabia like Ahmed Youssef. And, you know, we look at – if you try to capture all the factors, it doesn't work for the same reason that the total stock market has small stocks in it and value stocks in it. But it doesn't have exposure to small minus big or to value because it has large stocks that have – that counteract the small stocks and growth stocks that counteract the value stocks. And for the same reason, when you try to capture all the factors, many of these factors kind of conflict with each other. So you – the most obvious one is value and momentum. So value traditionally is book over price. So as the price goes down, something becomes more valuey, but it also becomes anti-momentum. Right. And then value can be junky. So when you overlay quality into it, so your intuition behind thinking that you, if you own everything, just like somebody who owns the entire index or, or fills in all the boxes on a Morningstar style chart, doesn't realize you've created the accidental index fund. If I try to capture all of the factors in one product, I'm... I'm left with something that looks a lot like market beta again. And if for investors that are concerned about exposure to market beta, when you look at a lot of these products, you go, hmm, the factor loads are tiny because they cancel each other. They're contrabats, so to speak. Um, and you're really left with um, a big dollop of market beta again. So is, if you think about where you'd want to expose factors, would you say the more con- – like, so Wes is a super believer in super concentrated 40-stock value baskets – uh, I don't know if your momentum basket West is also forty stocks, but super concentrated value tilts. If you're going to if you're going to do value or you do momentum, load up and go go big. Absolutely, yeah. There's actually from a risk standpoint, if you don't want to look like the market, take a tilt. Right, and taking everything is not taking a tilt. So I guess you would agree with that. Of course, I would agree <laughs> with that. Uh, but of course, maybe we should probably talk not about why it's interesting, but but what, what's the downside of that related to tracking error, and how, how do you guys consider that component of the equation? Yeah, well, we can see the logic behind why somebody would, as a as a professional money manager, want to not have exposure to one factor because we all know that you know value can go for decades and be out of favor, and you're you know you're going to be out, you're going to have career risk. So 
you know, the idea of if you like one factor, then, you know, factor one plus factor two must be good. And if you like a dual tilt, then a triple tilt must be good because you're going to smooth out those hollows where one factor is out of favor. Um, and that's valid. But if you're truly interested in, in maximizing your total return and making money you, and you don't want to look like the market, then you'd be best to pick a factor that you believe in and value would be a good one. And momentum is obviously the premier factor, as we know. That'd be a strong argument to go, don't capture everything, just capture, you know, value or momentum. Yeah, it's interesting. If you if, if you, you talked about the combination being, you know, perhaps BS. Um, if we say, is there any factor that you think is over-discussed and that factor itself, like momentum is a concept where, say, everybody should know the prices. Uh, prices should be reflected in all these factors. Like, why should momentum continue to work going forward? Um, and everybody knows, you know, these value factors or quality factors. Why do you think these factors will continue to work? Um, the momentum one might be better for Wes since you're the pro on, on momentum. Because I, I was going to answer your question with this, though. Like, the factors that don't make sense would be like quality, where there's this notion called harking, which is hypothesizing after the research is known, where it doesn't make any sense to me. Why would quality stocks deserve a risk premium? You know, it just doesn't make sense at all to me. Hmm. Yeah, and I think related to the risk premium is, is most of these things, if they're going to exist out of, out of sample, well, there's always some other side of the trade. And the reason you're getting paid excess return is because you're eating something that stinks, i.e. Mm -hmm. risk. And then the other one, arguably, uh, maybe in the case of momentum, where it's really difficult to have like a great risk story just from like a, a ground up, you know, macroeconomic foundation. So there's not really that fundamental risk, but anyone who's tried to trade momentum or looked at the long-term track record of momentum realizes that clearly it's risky. Maybe it's behavior driving it. Maybe it's God knows what's driving it. One thing is clear. If you do a momentum strategy, it works on average over, over time, but you also get your face ripped multiple times over. So it's not like it's a riskless free money trade either. Mm -hmm. um, and, and arguably it's more behavior, but it's very difficult to arbitrage the, the premium away because it's so noisy, basically. And did you so, have a view on these factors and yeah. which ones you like, which ones you don't like? Well, uh, you know, I think, you know, in terms of which ones you, you should like, um, I think that there should be a, a, a good body of evidence, both in the uh, academic and practitioner li literature, that demonstrates that the return itself is reasonably robust over time. That's sort of, cat you know, issue number one. Issue number two would be, um, you know, that, that there is really a, a very sound intuition with respect to why you deserve to be compensated for taking that risk. Um, and so that that realizing that these risk premia are not premia, they're risk premia from time to time, as Wes points out, they uh, can have unpleasant outcomes. Um, I think the third thing that is really critical is that um, there should not be a lot of overlap in terms of those risk factors. So they should be, to use a $10 word, relatively orthogonal. And I think you get much better results if you're, you know, choosing things that are fundamentally different. Now, in the academic world, there was kind of an interesting paper done by Cam Harvey um, where he talked about, you know, the 312 or so named risk factors in the equity space alone. And I, I will, I promise you, eat my own shoes if there are, in fact, 312 risk factors that are both statistically significant in terms of explaining why, you know, the cross-sectional variation of of, the, of stocks, um, and also, um, you know, are are orthogonal because that's just impossible. And you know, if you think about the incentive structure of an academic, he's, his job is to come up with new names for stuff and, you know, publish original research, not simply copy something that someone else has done. So that's where that's you know coming from. Um, 
So that that's kind of my view on that. You know, the ones that that generally tend to do well, um, I think momentum is actually a very useful risk factor, and I think you know, a good explanation for that is really just in many cases um, is that you you do not have a, a market that consists of of people that have homogeneous information. It's basically heterogeneous information, and it takes a little while for this, these things to diffuse through the market. And, you know, you're watching this market. You have as, a, as your, the basis for your trades the null hypothesis that there's nothing going on in the world. And if you see movement that indicates something is going on, then you follow it. And, you know, it is a well-known feature of a lot of these markets that they do um, exhibit a significant amount of autocorrelation. Um, and so, um, you know, if I could add, I'm sorry to dominate this conversation, but just one last thing that I think is going to be critical going forward is that one area where there um, uh, ha- has been uh, a real excess of autocorrelation historically has been in the interest rate markets. And if you think about why, you have a very dominant player. And, you know, it's Janet Yellen at the moment. And, uh, you know, she and, and her predecessors tend to adjust interest rate policy in a highly autocorrelated manner. So the last time they raised rates in this country was 25 basis points every six weeks, 17 times in a row. And that was actually part of an undocumented um, social welfare program known as No Trader Left Behind. You know, it, it just really creates an opportunity. Very good. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We've got Rich Wiggins in the studio, Andy Weissman, Wes Gray co-hosting in the studio with me today. Um, Rich, maybe we could get to, you know, some just views, some of your past background. Um, you started writing about factors a lot. Maybe talk a little bit about your career in the industry, how you, you know, got to the position you are and just sort of some of your background before your, your current position in Saudi. Sure. Um, so I used to be an equity manager. Um, and then I went from being a, an equity manager in the 80s and 90s to uh, I was the chief investment strategist of a publicly traded bank. And then I became a consultant. So for several years, I was a consultant with Summit Strategies in St. Louis. And then from that position, left from my current position as an expatriate. Very good. I, d- I just came back from St. Louis. We had uh, James Bullard on the program last week. Uh, St. Louis, there's a lot of <laughs> things coming together about St. Louis. But tell us, tell us, um, as a consultant, I mean, how do you, how do they look at the world um, in, in look, thinking about these alternative strategies? How do they think, or as in your role as a consultant, how do you think people evaluated these alternative strategies that we're talking about here? Well, I think so. As 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 people became more accepting of the fact that the amount of value that we could add as a consultant in the equity space you know, is pretty tiny. It's hard to find managers who, you know, who have, there's not a big range between the top decile and the bottom decile. Same with fixed income. And so, uh, you know, we would increasingly use alternatives because our ability to add value is, is much greater there in those asset classes. So um, from my time as a consultant, in the beginning, it was more of a, you know, we pick only the good equity managers to by the time I left, you're more like, you know the equity piece doesn't give you a whole lot of range to really add value. So the, the in the alternative space, you can you can really create value. Hmm. Now, Rich, one thing you uh, I know you guys are out here looking at risk parity funds, which is kind of a buzzword now. And you mentioned the idea of also inverse risk parity. Yeah. Uh, you mind talking uh, about both these concepts? Yeah, that was sort of a crazy idea. So we so the notion behind risk parity is you have several asset classes and you equalize the risks between them, um, but you know what we and it makes sense. You want to have a risk. You know, the notion of combining a strategy with risk after the great financial crisis obviously has great appeal, and so that risk parity strategy has had you know tons of uptake. It's been very popular. Um, but what we noticed is that you know if you look at like a, a it's a straight risk parity strategy. Like let's take the salient risk parity index and you look at 
the returns and the weightings of the different asset classes. If I look at the weightings of, you know, there's a column year by year of stocks, bonds, credit, commodities. You know, we noticed that in 2009, after the crash, because equities crashed, the vol went up, all the risk parity guys had to sell it. So they had the lowest weighting to, to stocks at the bottom of the market. Similarly, going into the, um, into the, forgot the term for that, um, when the in 2014 when the bonds taper tantrum, taper tantrum. Yeah, yeah. Going Thank to you. end of Sorry. 2013 there we yep. go taper tantrum you know they had tons of bonds tons of yeah. leverage and so you know we're looking at that going that doesn't really make sense you know maybe what we want is inverse risk parity i mean what i want is i want to buy equities when the equity market has declined and equity risk premiums are the highest and then as things settle down you know i'll get an extra little lift from sort of like pe multiple expansion yeah and so it's different. I mean, it's not going to be a risk-controlled strategy from that standpoint. But you're like, if I actually want to make money, that would make sense. And then when we look at the different risk parity providers, you notice that um, it's their risk control measures that subtract greatly from their return. So they have drawdown controls, et cetera, et cetera. And the managers that have those to the greatest degree you know, have really cost themselves quite a bit of return. And you said it sounded crazy. I think it sounds genius. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, the other thing I notice on uh, risk parity is, is it really depends on, on how you estimate vol, right? Because some people can be very static. If I used vol estimates over the last 20 years, you know, a, a random noise in 08 crisis, I'm not really changing my strategic, you know, allocation. Whereas people that are more fast moving using the last three months, they're going to be whips on all over the place. So do you see a lot of difference, like just like anything, you do a hedge fund, well, that could mean 10,000 things. Within risk parity, do you see a lot of similarities, divergences? Like like what are the product sets out there? You see a lot of divergence, yeah. So, okay. yeah so the Bridgewaters take a long-term view, and mm-hmm. then you have other firms like, you know, Panagora that are more, to use a casual term, more twitchy. You know, they're more dialed into... Yeah, day traders. Yeah. Well, not I wouldn't say that, but the, <laughs> the decay rate and how, you know... And any view on risk parity and this well, this, this anti-risk parity? Uh, risk parity is just an optimization technique. So it's I, I don't really think of it as an asset class so much. Um, I think the uh, you know the the you know how you go about doing risk parity is actually pretty well understood, and you know doesn't take you probably more than a couple hours to sort of go on on online and and pull off you know the basic set of equations that govern how to do this stuff. Um, in my experience, a lot of the risk parity products can be replicated, you know, incredibly easily with probably, you know, th- th- three ETFs or three futures contracts um, and and a basic understanding of how you estimate, a, you know, a variance-covariance structure and and, uh, and and put together, you know, stocks, bonds, and commodities. So um, I think if people are serious about investing in it, I think one of the things you want to think about is, you know, can you just simply do it yourself? Mm. Uh, what, what do you think about the inclusion of commodities in that view? I mean, is that a – how do you think about that as an asset class? I'm curious, Rich, also, how you think about commodities as an asset class. Um, has it got a role? Do you have a view on it today? Has the financialization of commodities and all the futures changed the landscape? Because you used to get backwardation on commodities, and now you're paying contango a lot of the times. Yeah, I, th- I think um, it's sort of interesting. You know, backwardation, uh, depending on the commodity, can be a relatively persistent feature. And, and I think roll yield – uh, if it's done right, um, in most cases it's not, in my opinion. Um, it can be a very useful uh, source of return. Um, in many cases, people actually end up taking the other side of that uh, trade. And so what happens is if you do a factor analysis of a typical large pension plan, somewhere embedded in that is is the uh, 
essentially the byproduct of advice that you got from an expert. And my dad, who was in the Army for his entire career, had a great definition of what an expert is. It's a guy from out of town, so I'm, I'm the expert here today. Well, I guess Rich and I both are because I live in Denver and Rich lives in Saudi Arabia. Um, but what happens is they end up uh, getting advice that commodities are a diversifying asset and therefore I want to own a chunk. And they generally get something that's the you know akin to a uh, – you know, a BCOM index or a GSCI index, and they end up uh, effectively owning the prompt month contracts and, and paying away roll yield. Yeah. And it shows up as a persistent drag on their portfolio. So in other words, they tend to be short one of the most useful, persistent, um, you know, f- features of, of, of the commodity markets. Um, so that, that can be problematic in my, in my mind. Here's a question for you guys. We're on the topic of weird, screwed up strategies. What do you guys all have been in this business for 20, 30 years now? What's the number one product or idea you've seen that raises your your BS radar the most over the years? Well, I, I have kind of an interesting thought on this. So, if you had to define the uh, the one risk factor that is the most useful risk factor that you can assume that will essentially allow you to be profitable on every single trade. And this is something that has been used by a number of hedge funds. It's the use of material non-public information. <laughs> and, you know, th- there are managers, Galleon, uh, you know, Steve Cohen would dispute whether or not he was involved in that. But, um, you know, I think uh, it's pretty obvious that he was, in my opinion. Um and, and a number of others. So there are actually some interesting risk factors that are actually modelable, hmm. quite honestly, that um, you know can be used to detect that sort of behavior. So I would say that's a form of trading that makes me nervous. Um, if you suspect someone is involved in doing that, that's a trade you can never close the books on. Because even if you take your money back you know, five or six years later, um, since you earned it through a fraudulent conveyance, they can come back and force you to disgorge those profits. So uh, that's something I think is worth paying attention to. Uh, on that bright note, we're going to take a, a quick break. You're, talk, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We're talking with Rich Wiggins, Andy Weissman, Wes Gray in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, with a special co-host today, Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, in our Wharton studio. We've got Rich Wiggins, Andy Weissman. We're talking factors. We're talking alternatives, liquid alternatives. And we were just in the beginning part of the show talking about all sorts of factor investment discussions. And Andy, you know, one of the things that we're seeing, I mean, given the interest in these factors, a lot of flows are going towards factors. Um, Do you think the money chasing, quote unquote chasing factor performance is going to degrade their performance? So uh, it's sort of an interesting practical and and theoretical answer to the question. Um, From a practical standpoint, I'm going to tell you about a secret hedge fund trading strategy. Um, but you have to promise you're not going to tell anyone if I do. So uh, I, there's a lot of managers that have this theory that stocks are actually more volatile than a treasury bill. Really? And therefore, uh, you deserve um, to be compensated over time for being long the stock market. Okay, so that's the secret uh, hedge fund trading strategy. And that's known in finance essentially as the equity risk premium. Hold, hold yeah. on a second, Andy. Do you think we could get paid <laughs> 2 and 20 to do that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, good, good. Well, I'm going to start up a new business. It's been done before. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, but if you take, you know, uh, I sort of 
one primary source of documentation, sim- simple, nice little cute job, uh, was done by Bob Arnott where he got a hold of um, um, stock market data from 1802 through 2010, I think was when the study came out. And what he showed was, sure enough, um, you know, stocks tend to outperform the risk-free rate. And, and uh, you know, you, you are basically indifferent between the risk-free rate and, and stocks um, if you have an assumption that you're going to get paid X percent above the risk-free rate over time. Um, now, it's called a risk premium and not simply a premium because it doesn't always work out that way. Uh, one of the interesting things that shows up in that data is, yes, while it is true that I tend to be compensated over time for doing this, there is still about a 15% chance, even over a 20-year time horizon, that T-bills will actually outperform the stock market. So it you know, doesn't always work. So that's that, just from a practical standpoint, that's how the numbers uh, show up. There is a really wonderful paper that I think is one of the most important papers in finance uh, Grossman and Stiglitz paper, I think it came out in 1992, where they um, talk about um, essentially describe the world as, as consisting of two types of investors, kind of the, the informed investors and the uninformed investors. And the informed ones, the ones that sort of participate in a market and rationalize these, uh, these returns, um, they got expensive people. They got to buy data. They got to trade. They got to do, you know, have fancy offices with artwork so that the clients are impressed. And if they're not compensated for doing this, these non-trivial expenses um, will overwhelm their activities and they'll stop doing it. And so what they're able to show in this paper with literally a closed form solution proof is that in a world where it is non-trivial from an expense standpoint to rationalize markets – the equilibrium is by definition inefficient, not efficient. Mm. So I think there's a good theoretical explanation with respect to why these other risk factors tend to persist over time. Things like, you know, uh, you know, buying stocks that are cheap relative to their fundamentals, um, engaging in markets, assuming that non-trivial risk that you're going to have a big, you know, drawdown from some peak open equity but participating to rationalize momentum in a marketplace. I think all of that stuff uh, paying off over time to a certain degree in a time-varying way is consistent with, um, the, you know, that insight. Yeah, that's, uh, that's good. I think it's a 1980, actually, even before. Oh, it was 1980. Yeah. You're right. Uh, Absolutely. That's right, 80, well, 1980. What's super fascinating, I, I find that paper uh, very uh, interesting as well, is how do you, and this is both the Andy and the Rich, you know, there's also the sharp, critique and his arithmetic of, you know, active management or whatever. Mm-hmm. H- how do you think about that where the general idea is, hey, if there's more and more passive and the active people are just fighting against each other, they're related. But or Rich, you want to try to go after that one? What do you think about how the Grossman Stiglitz, the impossibility of efficient markets, juxtaposes with the sharp critique? Um, so the, the- not sure of the Stiglitz paper. I'm not as up to date as, as on top of that as Weissman. So, the, we actually had a, a prominent investor in recently, and he was making the comment that um, passive passive inve- he's an active investor. He's like passive investors are really riding on the coattails of active investors because the market cap weights are coming from the active investors, and I don't really agree with that because I'm like you know people are trying continually trying to refine passive approaches and dialing up different ways to break the link to price and. Reweight the market cap. You know, don't use market cap weighting. Use alternative weighting. So, um, so I think that, that that 
pe- I think that you can, that people are always trying to find ways that you know some something that will add that'll provide an edge. Yeah, so passive really doesn't exist. Even passive is a strategy implied in it, right? So there's a str- there's a strategy under there. It's just a question of whether that's what you totally believe in. Yeah. Andy, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I I think you know the the sharp you know argument is really one where you know it's sort of the lake will be gone. You know, all all of the children are above average, and we know that that can't be the case, right? I mean, that's essentially the nature of the argument that he's making. And I think that you can have that argument that shows that, um, you know, not every active investor can outperform because it's just mathematically impossible. So I do think he makes a good point in that regard. But it doesn't mean that all those active investors can't simply make money over time, essentially generate a return that's above the risk-free rate. And I, I don't I, I don't see those two arguments as necessarily being, in you know, um, lying in juxtaposition to each other. Rich, so yeah. you, if, if you think about the challenges today, I mean, what do you think as the challenges, if we're trying to earn returns above the risk-free rate, what do you see as the market environment today that, that has you either worried to, that you're not going to earn returns above the risk-free rate or, or that or not you, per, you know, the, the you being the, the collective we as the investment community, what are the challenges we all face? Right. Well, obviously the challenges are that, um, you know, we've had a perfect environment for, you know, whatever, it's been 30 years or so with declining interest rates. And so, you know, valuation levels on equities are, are extended. And then we've also had the most benign interest rate environment that we've, you know, you could possibly have. So if those two things have been perfect so far, then the future can be obviously, you know, something less than perfect because, you know, interest rates can't go lower. We all know that. It's, you know, overly talked about. Um, so I would just simply say that, you know, in that environment, you know, like you, the returns you receive on equities is dependent on the price you pay. And so moving forward, it just doesn't seem as optimistic as in the past. But people have been saying that since 2008. So. Mm-hmm. So there was a really interesting presentation uh, done by Marty Leibowitz, speaking specifically about fixed fixed income, um, about two, three years ago at at the Q Group, the Institute for Quantitative Research and Finance. And the paper um, that he presented, I think, has some really um, far-reaching fundamental um, implications for uh, investors. And, And the idea is that if you have a fixed income fund, and you manage that fixed income fund or portfolio, and you have a, a benchmark. And those benchmarks are usually provided in the form of a duration benchmark. So you have a six-year duration benchmark, a classic sort of uh, Barclays Ag type of benchmark. The return you're going to get on that portfolio at exactly the nine-year time horizon is precisely equal to the current yield on the book, irrespective of where interest rates end up or the path they take to get there. So we're looking right now at 2.5%. That's what you're getting for the next almost decade. And it's inescapable. Before inflation, so maybe 50 bips real. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Now, if you think about where we are right now, um, you know, there's some real challenges. And there's some things that have been put in place that one could sustain a reasonably cogent argument that will lead – to some interesting outcomes out of sample. Most notably, you know, a three to three and a half trillion dollar increase in high-powered money that was directly the result of the Federal Reserve acquiring at one point um, fixed income instruments at the rate of $80 billion a month. That's a huge monetary stimulus. We're on the brink of potentially, if, if you know, if, if the Trumpster doesn't uh, get in the way, um, significant t- tax reform, which 
uh, could represent effectively a $1.3 trillion um, fiscal stimulus, essentially. Um, we're talking about the possibility of major infrastructure spending. We're talking about a lot of things, all of which could trigger at some point, and we're beginning to see this, um, you know, some real um, inflationary pressures. Now, what are the implications for that? Well, um, on, on the fixed income side of things, I think, and, and, and portfolio management side of things, most people walk around with this structural model in their brain that says stocks and bonds are negatively correlated. I can have balance in my life. And, uh, you know, if you think about the, the actual results, if you take a look at, say, the tenure note from the early 1950s to today, fully 75% of the time, the price of that bond and the price of the stock market have actually been positively mm. correlated in terms of price. We might get that again, right? And, the, the approximate cause of a decline in equities could be rising rates and well, yeah, pressures and, and up the... People think they're negatively correlated, but... They don't have to be. And in fact, most of the time they're not. And in fact, if you get the yield on the 10-year note above much more than about 4.5%, there has never been a two-year rolling window where stocks and bonds have not been positively correlated in terms of price. Hmm. So if we see a significant pickup in the part of the curve which has been most manipulated, which is the long end of the curve, it is almost axiomatic that both stocks and bonds are going to do badly. And the one thing that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't know, and I'm getting older, um, that, that I've noticed is that, um, you know, the bulk of the equity analysts that are alive today working at, you know, sell-side firms got their MBAs eight years ago, and they have never had to consider the time value of money. Because interest rates have been at zero, but you know, as the world changes, you know, we 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 are potentially entering into an environment where if you don't have a risk factor in your portfolio that is explicitly attempting to capture momentum in the movements of interest rates, you could be in for a very difficult and painful experience. That is a very interesting comment. Um, let me bring back Rich into the, the conversation here. Um, so, if, if we're talking about really the challenges for equity and bond investors. And now you might have these scenarios where you have equities and bonds go down together. It brings back the idea of alternatives and the role of alternatives in the portfolio. Um, and you've been looking at, or you, you wanted to, is there a, how do you think about that challenge? Is there a way to attack either hedge funds, long short strategies, something like managed futures that can go short interest rates? I mean, how, how do you think about that? Or you want to maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, those would certainly have a role. So we, um, we obviously use a lot of alternatives and, and um, you know, trying to get exposure to, to betas and aren't going to be simply, you know, equities or, or interest rates. But um, increasingly, you know, we're, we're trying to explore if, you know, we can do this without paying the 2 and 20 fees. And that's one of the reasons to, you know, go out and meet people like Andy and that and, and Wes and say, all right, so how, how could you give me an exposure where I win if equities are down and bonds are down? Is there a way, you know, is there a way for this to work? But a lot of the alts, have equity and fixed income exposure. Oh, so and when you put them together, it, it literally replicates the benchmark that you're trying to diversify away from. Right. So there's a little bit of magic there that may not be magic. We're just, you know, trying yeah, to figure yeah. figure out, okay, how much is this real and how much of this isn't? This is both the rich and to Andy. Uh, this I guess, the million-dollar question, because I think you highlighted the biggest risk to all portfolios going forward is roll in on 60-40 as, this, as if this is going to save us. But it may not. That might be the crisis. So what do people do to solve this? Like, like alts is a big, big picture thing. Like, is there anything specific you can mention or that you've looked at that's compelling? 
And before you enter, let me just reintroduce our guests. We got Rich Wiggins, Andy Weissman, Wes Gray, co-hosting with me, Jeremy Schwartz, talking about what are we going to do to prevent the 60-40 crash. Yeah, so one of the interesting things to do this, Andy, um, when when you're looking at a portfolio, even a 60-40 uh, portfolio, is what we like to do is, uh, is – essentially do something called a principal component analysis. So what you're asking is actually a pretty simple question. How many truly independent sources of risk are there in this portfolio? And and roughly in what proportion do they exist? So when you analyze in this purely, you know, a theoretical uh, way, a 60-40 portfolio, what you discover is well over 90% of the risk in that portfolio is a single factor because you've actually allocated most of the capital to the most volatile piece in the portfolio, which is the equity piece. Uh, one of the things that we have done, my colleague uh, Rich and I, uh, Rich Lindsay and I, um, we've t- probably analyzed seventy or eighty major institutional portfolios historically, and the, the the typically those portfolios, even though they may be the byproduct of a lot of work and a lot of participants will typically uh, have well in excess of 90% of their variance explained by a single factor. And in fact, the most diversified portfolio of the major portfolios that we've looked at had about 82% of its risk mm. explained by a single factor. So, What should it be instead of 80%? How much do you think? Well, what, what, I, it, what do you propose you know, to those people? It, the portfolio that we manage, um, when it was looked at um, recently by um, a major consulting firm that gave us this um, – this this uh, highest conviction rating, I think part of what caused them to do it was the fact that um, only 14% of our variance could be explained by a single risk factor. And the second factor explained about 13% of the variance and so on and so forth. And it took actually 10 factors to get to 90% of the variance. That's a, a very unusual outcome for a portfolio. But the bottom line is if you think about it, um, you know, there's only one free lunch in finance, and that's diversification. So describe that portfolio, because is that – you wouldn't describe – would you describe that as somebody's entire portfolio that replaces the 60-40? Is that something that just should complement the 60-40? Or do you think people – and so describe what this portfolio is that has maximum 13 percent in one risk well, factor. So basically, um, you know, what th- this is what I do with my money. Okay. Um, All your money, 100 percent? 100 percent of my 100%. liquid uh, cash is, is in this. Um, and why is that? Because it is really um, as diversified an set of exposures as I can possibly dream up and and hmm. and, and do. Um, the one factor that's not in there in that portfolio is the equity risk premium. And why is that? Because you don't need me to get that. You can go to um, you know to you guys, Vanguard <laughs> and, or yeah. any such firm. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you can get that for you know ten basis points. So uh, you know much less than that. <laughs> yeah, or less than that. Yeah, exactly. So you don't need me for that. And uh, and, and and second of all, you know the biggest single challenge that a lot of these portfolios have is is the fact that they are so concentrated in terms of that single risk factor. And while principal component analysis doesn't tell you what the factor is, I think we're all adults here and we know what it is. Is did the stock market go up or down today? Yeah. And uh, and so the idea is we feel like we are performing a, a, a you know a useful service if we can provide people with a collection of in our case eleven 
uh, relatively orthogonal risk factor exposures to complement um, what it is they're doing and and not replicate the factor that is dominant in their existing so did portfolio. Did I hear it right that you have no equity exposure besides well, for the PCA well, analysis that well, gives you we some... Use, we use equities to for get you, these... No, you personally, you said 100%. I don't investment. have a directional equity exposure in okay. my, in my, in my uh, investment portfolio. I, don't, you know, I don't, haven't really needed to, and the performance has been really good. Yeah. And, and not only that, I can look at the stock market on any given day. That gives me no guidance at all with respect to how I'm doing from an investment standpoint. So what do you think the expected returns on this are? I mean, obviously, there's no guarantees, future results, and uh, all those the standard disclosures. Yeah. Um, but does this say if equities are 10 long run, this and equities, no, you know, there's no chance equities are going to be 10 from here, right? right. But let's say we think the equity risk premium is, is the real return on equities in the U.S., call it 5 plus 2, maybe get 7 right. from equities. I mean, do you think it's going to match the 7 you could get in just long only equities? Well, sorry, it's interesting, you know, just in terms of what those numbers actually are. So the CFA published a, an article about uh, five years ago. Um, I think um, Brett Hammond, maybe one of the – or Larry Siegel, were, were the two guys that put this, and maybe um, Marty Leibowitz participated as well. Um, they took a look at essentially what the bid-offer spread amongst the smartest guys in the world for forecasting the equity risk premium and what they were coming up with. And it turns out the range was anywhere from zero to 700 basis points. Yeah. So 700 basis points is an aggressive – it's, it's, first of all, it's a widespread. And 700 in terms of your assumption with respect to what are you going to get above the risk-free rate out of the equity markets is a big number. Yeah. You know, and, and it's an optimistic number. So um, – I think a way a lot of these numbers are arrived at um, in the um, sort of um, investment community is what does that number have to be so that I don't have to declare that my fund is my plan that I'm managing is underfunded, uh, you know. So it's like, what does it need to be? Not what you know what I really think it is now. So you didn't give me a number yet. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I need I, facts, Andy. You know, I think historically, if, <laughs> opinion. If, this is opinion. I think you can produce about a one sharp ratio over time. One sharp. And, uh, you know, I think that's realistic. And, you know, we target about an 8.5% fall. Okay. So 8.5%. There we go. Yeah. Um, Rich, do you think that's possible? Do you think you can do it? Yeah, I think you can do it. You can do it. Yeah. How, how do we do it, Rich? A w- one sharp would be great. <laughs> I guess Andy has all the answers. We got to give all our money to Andy. Here's, here's a question oh, I, I have. I also say that uh, let's quote Niels Bohr here and all agree that it's true that uh, forecasting is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> no, I hear you. This question is actually related to that because I think Meb had a recent thing about I just want to collect all the, the expected return uh, nominations from every smart person out there. And, and almost uniformly, and all of us would agree here, you know, bonds, 2% and change, stocks going to be a lot lower. There's not a single person that you can even find that says over the next 20 years, like the premium could be higher. So let's just invert the question and think, do you guys have any opinion that maybe we're just all wrong and maybe this is a different world? Has, have you guys ever considered that? Because everyone's saying the same thing right now. Crickets. Uh, well, I, I, I see your point, but I think that, like, on the bond side, mathematically, it's almost impossible to get the, the historical rate of return side. So Unless yeah. rates went to 50 negative. bips or negative. Yeah. Just like on equities, profit margins could go higher. Evaluations could go higher. Yeah, it's true, but probabilistically, I would say unlikely. Based on the historical data, because it all mean reverts, right. but what if it doesn't? Which is true, and it's a form of nostalgia if you just look back at the history. So, yeah, but it's a valid point. Well, yeah. it's not a point. I'm just curious if, yeah. if no one seems to ever consider 
that component of the argument. And that's where the real money is made is when the consensus is 100% on one side of the coin, but you, you could somehow logic yourself to think, well, actually, they might be wrong. And that's the Bitcoin trade. You know, right. that's how you make a lot of money. Um, I was just curious if you guys thought of it. Yeah, I mean, anything is possible, you know. I think you have to keep an open mind about these sorts of things because it's very it's just stuff is just impossible to forecast. Um, you know, I mean, think about it, you know, sort of rationally. If you know, equity vols typically run in fifteen percent, you know, annualized vol, um, then ninety five percent confidence bounds around a one year estimate of the S and P is roughly plus or minus twenty five percent, right? So anything from a forecast standpoint within about a fifty percent range is kind of the same number, and you know, so can you be accurate? No. Yeah. Yeah. And yet all of us predict lower expected returns on these things. Yeah. So we're all making a forecast. Uh, <laughs> well, I think it, with the bonds, you, you, I don't think you have to make a forecast. I mean, it's 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 pretty Some straightforward. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's determined, you know, unless, yeah. of course, you don't have a benchmark and you're free to just – you're free to date with the market and do whatever you want to do. It's Most fund managers aren't. It's interesting you said people need a momentum component to their rates, so right. it's interesting. Maybe managed futures will have a comeback, Wes. It's something you and I talk about. I'm a huge trend follower. Yeah. Interest rate momentum is a big part of what we do. I mean, I think it's that's something that I would feel very uncomfortable not having in a portfolio. Interest rate momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, and interest rate factors, it's sort of a lot of people are very versed in equity factors. Um, I think fixed income factors is, is sort of the new frontier. We're getting more and more, something my firm is starting to think more and more about. We've been creating some strategies there. And so I think and that's the commodity a, sector is really yeah. a wonderful, um, you know. You know, if you have a strategy where you're looking for distortions in the term structure of commodity futures contracts with some sort of convergence trade, what has that got to do with, you know, um, whether the Fed points move up or down, the dot plot moves, or what does that have to do with whether or not the stock market's going on? Nothing. It's it's you know it is a highly orthogonal uh, source of return. Very good. Well, we've been uh, having a great conversation here. Rich Wiggins in the studio, Andy Weissman, Wes Gray. Thank you all for joining us here in the studio on Warren's campus. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Wes, thanks for coming to the studio, co-hosting here. You got it. Anytime. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.